Hello, you are listening to the Plumfield Moms, and this is Plumfield in Person. Hi, I'm Sarah Masaryk. Diane is here today, but she's nursing a cold. And today we have our dear friends, Tanya Arnold from BiblioGuides and Jill Morgan from Purple House Press. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. Diane, this is going to be, I think, an interesting episode today because we're not talking about a particular author and we're not talking about a particular book. Instead, we're talking about the fact that Jill has on her website curated specific libraries that are topical. So if you are a mom looking for a nature study book for your child, you can go right to Purple House Press's website and look at the nature study library. And there is a whole bunch of great options in there. So today we're going to talk about how that came to be, how it got named, what's included, and what might be coming. Jill, for years, I have loved your website. I have loved your catalog and your small press and have really appreciated the work that you have done to bring back beautiful old books. Along the way, I began to notice on your website that you have these curated libraries. And the nature study library is of particular interest to me, but I didn't know very much about it until this year. How did you come up with the idea to have a nature study library? Where did that come from? Over the last few years, I have decided to get into nonfiction. And that's where Tanya Arnold started suggesting nature study authors uh, like Alice Gowdy, Glenn Blau, Jeannie Bendick. Um, she had a very long list. And so I, I went through, <laughs> I went through a list of these authors, looked at all their books and selected a few and got her opinion. And um, we went from there. I am convinced that Tanya has more names and just hasn't shared them with you yet. Yes. You're not ready. I think it's endless. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You know, today Tanya sent a picture to me of her Elizabeth Ripley books. And I was looking at the other books on the shelf next to him thinking, I wonder if she's going to talk to Jill about that one. Oh, that one's got to be on the list too, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's actually funny because on the Elizabeth Ripley shelf at my home, there is another set of books that I have been talking to Jill about on that shelf. Yes. Oh, too funny. (laughs) And I didn't know that. So that's funny. (laughs) Now I'm wondering which ones they are. (laughs) I'll tell you after. I'll remind you again. (laughs) Okay. Well, I probably remember them. I just can't see your shelf right now. No. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I really have enjoyed the collaboration between the two of you. As as we all know, Tanya has impeccable taste. And Jill, I think you have very good judgment for what is worthy of being reprinted and what will sell and what will be a good addition to your catalog. And so the magic between the two of you has really blessed a lot of us. I am so delighted to have these books back in print. So Tanya, where did the list come from? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know. Maybe I'll start back in my childhood. I really love nature. I think if you are of a particular age and older, you probably grew up playing outside a lot and being outside a lot. My husband and I both grew up in small towns and we probably spent eight hours a day or more outside. And I love nature. And even before I understood 
how homeschoolers approach nature study, especially maybe those who study Charlotte Mason. Mm -hmm. I loved nature stories and I loved nature books. So for me, nature is, it's like foundational to everything. It's almost a Mm -hmm. first language for for Uh, humans, for people. It's, it's where we initially create a sense of awe and wonder and curiosity. It's how we connect to the world and -hmm. to each other. And I just think it's beautiful and I love everything about it. And I think a lot of us want to create that for our children, even if they can't be outside eight hours a day. And so beautiful books have, and stories have such a way of bringing the outside in. Mm -hmm. So like, so for me, nature study is foundational. It's foundational to science. You know, you need to know and love nature before you can brush into science. It's also foundational to geography and to math, art, music, everything starts at nature from, in my opinion. And then Mm -hmm. you can build upon that. And, you know, when you look at the great artists and musicians, they're inspired by nature. Often that's kind of one of their first muses. And oftentimes many of them spent time in nature as a child. So I think I've always just had a love for it. And then as I started learning more about some of the really excellent authors from the late 19th century to mid 20th century, I just started collecting them and researching and studying and kind of curating my own library and creating a list of those that are rare, that would be wonderful to be brought back. And then when I introduced myself to Jill, I really loved what she was creating with Purple House Press. Yes. And I loved the picture books. I liked the chapter books. I just, I thought there was so much beauty there. Mm-hmm. And I had ideas. I'm kind of an idea person. So I had ideas and we just started just chatting. And then I really worked to support a lot of the projects that she was doing. I wanted to see her be successful mm-hmm. because I thought there could be more great things. <laughs> I just have big vision. <laughs> and so when I first started bringing nature books to her, I think it was kind of different from what she had normally been doing. And it took her a minute to <laughs> Like, take a look and see. And I think, you know, we talk about fiction versus nonfiction, but these kind of blend of the line a little bit. It's yes, they do. It's nonfiction through story. So Mm -hmm. if you are speaking to someone who's really traditional today, they might not really feel like this is true nonfiction, but to me, it's true through story. It's Mm -hmm. almost more true than nonfiction because Mm -hmm. of the way it opens your heart and your mind and helps you create connections, especially with children. Mm -hmm. So I, and I know we kind of brainstormed like the nature study library idea, and she just created all those beautiful, um, like the graphics for her covers and she got excited. I think was the first one McClung that you did or a Zim? Um, it was ostriches. Yeah. And then I went up to McClung. Yes. So why ostriches? Why did you start there? I mean, to go from mad scientist club to ostriches. <laughs> I looked at the book and it just looked like a good book to start with. And I have to say, I did not grow up reading any of these as a child. I read 100% fiction. That's mm. all I cared for. And it really took me quite a while to understand the the beauty of these books. And then once I started giving them a chance, it's like, wow, I really wish I'd read these as a child, especially Robert McClung. And he just makes story. The stories of these animals' lives where you just really get close to them. And like, who thinks 
they would like reading about a rattlesnake or a fish. I mean, right. I didn't, I didn't, but I actually cared about Leaper, you know? Yes. <laughs> and, um, it, it's just, a, I can see how it's a really great way for children to learn and they don't even realize that they're learning because they're just so engaged in the story. They're just internalizing it. It's becoming mm-hmm. part of their story. You know, mm-hmm. we, we have uh, fishermen in our family and they're pretty serious fishermen. And so every time the boys are talking about fishing or we're driving somewhere and we see people fishing, I, I go right back to Leaper. I can't not think about Leaper and to have more insight in how the whole, I mean, I always knew how spawning worked because I grew up on the Great Lakes. There's a lot of that here. It's very cultural for us here, but I didn't have kind of the intimate knowledge of it that I have now from having read Leaper and made that journey with Leaper and mm-hmm. all the different stopping places along his way. And in just the way it ties in, even with the conservationists and him being tagged. And it was just fascinating. So Diane, I know you grew up watching the wonderful world of Disney. Was that on Sunday nights? Yes. So you had to not go to church. <laughs> and so that was nature. But it was scripted and it was controlled, but it was still nature. Jill, did you ever watch The Wonderful World of Disney and see those nature programs as a kid? Oh, every week. Yeah. And <laughs> the um, Mutual of Omaha, whatever that was. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Mutual was of that, Omaha's Wild Kingdom. Yes. Was that the same show or a different show? I it was know. a different one. Jim, okay. go grab that crocodile for me. <laughs> <laughs> Tanya, did you grow up watching any of those shows? Nope. No, me either. I did The Wonderful World of Disney, but in my day, I thought it was more fiction stories. Like yeah. it was the Apple Dumpling Gang. And um, you can tell what I really like, the Apple Dumpling Gang. <laughs> <laughs> For me, it was Karen Trap. I yeah, love oh, yeah. anything Haley Mills. I love it. But I also think like when I was maybe in high school, it was like they would rerun Cinderella and mm-hmm. Beauty and things like that, that had were more difficult to get. I mean, I was from a small town. We didn't have cable TV. Mm-hmm. So we just had what, you know, we could get. Well, and Disney did do a couple of really interesting books. And I think that they were based off of a TV series or a show they did because I'll see them at thrift stores. They're called the True to Life Nature Books. And oh. they'll be about an animal. So it's photography, but it's like some of them were written by, I really want to say like Rutherford Montgomery, who wrote a lot of like dog books and nature books. They are interesting books that people see them. They're called the, I think they're called the true to life nature books. And there's a few different ones that are out there. The Wonderful World of Disney was the name of the Sunday night show. Okay. So the nature series was not like every week. And that's probably the misunderstanding is that there were all different kinds of things. You didn't really know what you're going to get unless you had mm-hmm. the TV guide. Right. Right. Which if you know what that accurate. is, Tanya. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I do. It's a book. So <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I, I bring all this up. I didn't mean to go on a Disney rabbit trail, but I think about how our generation, it was these kinds of living stories about nature weren't really very much of a thing. And 
I think, you know, Jill and Diane, you at least grew up with that being on the big screen and you had some of these books. So it doesn't surprise me, Jill, that you never that you never read those books. But I think I can see why you would come to appreciate them because you did have beautiful experience watching those nature shows. We we didn't. Yeah. Well, and I think I don't know exactly when this would have taken place, but when you're looking at nature stories and science stories by about the 70s, you're starting to see a transition in the way the stories are written. And I think we're really, we're starting to move towards a really more differentiation between fiction and nonfiction. Mm -hmm. And um, nonfiction becomes very less narrative, more technical at all, at all reading levels. There's still a lot in the seventies where you're going to find some really beautiful narrative, but it's just, you're seeing that transition start to happen. And by the eighties, I feel like we're almost full blown this delineation between what's nonfiction and fiction. When we're working on the database and we're adding books in, especially nature books, sometimes I can't decide if it's fiction or nonfiction. I don't know how (laughs) to designate it because I'm reading this story and everything about it is the life cycle of this animal. It is true. Right. But the animal has a name. It it's given maybe some emotions, like maybe possibly what it's thinking. You're kind of, you're empathizing. This is Robert McClung to a T, right? You're empathizing Mm -hmm. with the, with the animal. Mm -hmm. So I think, what is it? I don't know. (laughs) Maybe librarians were also the ones to say, we don't know what these books are. Are they fiction? Are they nonfiction? So when you're looking at the books that are about 1969 and earlier, you're just seeing this narrative style of writing and you're seeing it from scientists. I wanted to share, you know, Jill was saying that Herbert Zim wrote ostriches and that was the first one that she had looked at doing. Well, he has a really strong scientific educational background. He um, earned a bachelor's and a master's and a PhD from Columbia University. Wow. Yeah. And he had over 30 years teaching in the fields of science and education. And he worked on a lot of books that people may be familiar with. Like he was the editor of the Golden Guides, for example. Oh, yeah. Right. People love the Golden Guides. Those are still being reprinted today. He authored some. He was the editor for the full series. He wrote Oh, he was just prolific in the number of children's stories that he wrote. And his may not feel, I don't think, quite as narrative as McClung, but they're definitely narrative and informational. So you're Mm -hmm. seeing someone that's at the top of his game from an educational scientific perspective, but he's not writing the way we would expect someone to be writing, quote unquote, nonfiction stories today. When I came into homeschooling, the biggest thing I heard was get the Burgess bird book. I kept trying to understand what it was because it was very hard to get. And um, you could get a cheap paperback for, I think Dover made one. And I just did not understand it. And I kept thinking, well, it sounds a lot, you know, like Beatrix Potter or something like that. And everybody's like, no, 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 it's definitely different. So I got the Burgess bird book and, and read it with my kids and all of that. And I remember always feeling a bit like a homeschool nature study failure because I didn't love the Burgess Bird book. <laughs> and so then I began to want to doubt that I really liked nature books. But thank God for Diane, because she introduced me to Jean Stratton Porter. And loving Porter, I began to say, oh, no, 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 there, it, it's just Burgess. Burgess and I don't get along. That's fine. <laughs> there, there are other great authors, too. So when I saw Jill's books, I was totally smitten with the fact that they are small. Because the Burgess Bird book is huge, right? So if you're a homeschool mom and you're thinking, how am I going to read this whole thing out loud to my kids? 
the thing I love is there are a wide variety of authors. It's not like she's just got one. Are there five? Is it Zim, McClung, Gowdy? Mm, there's at least one other. Did you get Blau? Blau. Because she's the illustrator. And yeah, it's so Blau and Bendick. Yeah, that's what it is. It's those five. Well, and then we have, and I don't know how you say his name because it's French, Fabre. Oh, Fabre. Yeah. Oh, and Phyllis Perry. The mushroom book. Yes. Oh, right. Phyllis Perry. Right. Okay. So that's. Lampman, if you want to count sitting and, under the back steps. Well, but mm-hmm. see, now then we get into that whole question, right? Yes. <laughs> that book, that'll, right. Yes. Where does that book fit? Where does sitting under the back steps fit? Is it nonfiction? Is it fiction? Is it science? Is it science fiction? It's, so the answer is yes. Oh, is <laughs> exactly. Yes. Well, I'm just so smitten because if you don't like one particular author, you can go to Jill's website and you have a whole variety of authors. I think we said, is it seven or eight? It's a lot of different voices in one style that make the magic of science accessible to families. And the illustration is beautiful in all of them. Different, Mm -hmm. but beautiful. And so it's well done as a read aloud. It's well done put in the, in your child's basket for them to pick up at will or to be assigned. It, they're so flexible. There's so many different ways you can use them and enjoy them and love them and revisit them. They're all so different and unique. So like, yes, they have this common theme of nature. They all love to speak to nature and science, but their writing style is different. Their approach is different. So you can find something that your child can really connect to because not every child is going to connect to Burgess. My daughter, I have tried multiple times to read the Burgess bird book and she literally just, she goes somewhere else in her mind. She zones out, Mm -hmm. but I can read her, for example, Glenn Blau Mm -hmm. and she's mesmerized. In fact, I wanted to share with you, there's a, I really love Glenn Blau and I can tell you a little bit of information about him, but we were reading today who lives in this meadow. Oh, I love that Um, book. Yeah. Illustrated by Jeannie Vendick. And you know what I want to say about Jeannie Vendick? I just assume that her name is Jeannie. I have researched left and right to see what the actual pronunciation of her name is, because some people might go by Jean. And her mother was 16, I think. No, I don't know. Her family emigrated from France to the Louisiana area. And then at some point they moved up to New York. So it could just be that it's Jean and that she went by Jean Vendick. Mm -hmm. So we're going to go with Jeannie, acknowledging that we're not 100% sure that we know how to say her name. And we intend this. no disrespect. And and we, yes, no disrespect. And because names are important, right? They are, yeah. Um, but she collaborated with Glenn Blau a lot. Mm-hmm. And there is just something about his writing style, especially in this story. There's a certain musicality to it. Mm-hmm. There's a certain rhythm. And there's a certain repeatability that happens through the story that I feel like just takes a child right into the place where you're discussing. And yet he brings in a lot of scientific elements. Yes. So, so for example, this one is who lives in this meadow. So it says the meadow is quiet, except sometimes you can hear the water in the brook. It trickles. Sometimes you can hear the meadowlark that sits on the fence. It whistles. Sometimes you can hear the kingfisher that sits on a branch of that old dead tree. It rattles. Sometimes If you are a good listener, you can hear the bumblebees buzzing in the red clover. You must stand very quietly and listen as hard as you can, 
But no matter how hard you try, you can't hear the mice and the moles that live in the ground. You can't hear the fish that live in the water. They don't make sounds that you can hear. Neither do the turtles that sit beside the pond, nor the rabbits that frolic in the grass. They all live quietly in the meadow. So then you go a couple pages further. Isn't that musical? It's like that rhythm. It's so gorgeous. And then he says, so here's here. You're going to see a repetition. And I just, I, I think children are going to catch on this and it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. This is called living under the water. Some animals live near the pond and just go into it now and then toads and turtles do that. Some live on top of the water and find food in it. Ducks do that. Some live under the water and never come into the meadow at all. Fish do that. Mm. And it goes on. And I just, I'm like, oh, I could just read it all day long. I love it. It's a, it's just, what is it, Sarah? It's just beautiful. It's such an elegant way of showing compare and contrast, which is a technique, right? That's a technical thing we want our children to understand, but it does it in such a natural, musical, wholesome way. You know, you were saying earlier, Tanya, that you think that nature is our first language and all the things you said, I agree with it is it's beautiful. It's musical. It's textural. We really feel nature. We smell nature, right? It's sensory stimulating. It is the way to communicate so much about existence, but it's also orderly. And that's one of the things I love rings and trees, you know, life cycles and and migration patterns and even how the ants work under the back steps. These orderly things also teach our children that creativity and beauty happens in orderly ways. And what you're saying about Blau's writing is it's rhythmic. It follows a pattern. It's also using a device. So it's adhering to a law of language, but it's doing it in a way that is beautiful and it is contributing to the beauty. And I think that that is such good modeling for our children too. There's no didactic, I am teaching you this. It's rather take my hand and let's immerse ourselves in this and enjoy it together. And it's just an invitation to explore nature. I think what's brilliant is that who lives in this meadow is part of a series that um, Ben Dick and Blau did together. And Jill is doing more than just one of these. She's done a number of them. But if you've never seen Ben Dick's illustrations, they're, they're like no other, her illustrations are unique. You could, you can go into us once you have seen her illustrations, if you go thrift shopping or to a library sale or something, and you see a book, you can spot it. Yeah. So fast. She's just, Mm -hmm. she's masterful. It's whimsical and technical at the same time. It has its own personality, or I would say Leonard Kessler's like that. You just spot Mm -hmm. it immediately. My favorite hand down is bird watchers, bird feeders. I, (laughs) love that book so much. And it does not have the same rhythms and patterns as After Dark and Who Lives in the Meadow, but it has the same friendly invitation. And it it takes, I don't know, it made me feel empowered as a bird watcher. And I think that bird watching, one of the things you always hear about in, in homeschool circles about nature study is learn to watch birds. And it always feels very technical. You know, my kids have the Sibley guides and they've studied Audubon and they do watercolor and all of that. And all that's good. Absolutely. But sometimes I just feel like a big dummy. <laughs> and I have to say that the Blau and Bendick book did not make me feel like a dummy. It made me feel like I could learn to appreciate and study these birds and enjoy them. And every time I look at my bird feeder, I think of that book. 
And the bird feeder is right outside my school table window. So it's like all the time. That's nice to know. Yeah. I want to share this thing that I read about Janie Bendick um, that kind of speaks to her illustrations. And then I think Jill, you should share what you did to make her illustrations. I definitely want us to go there next. <laughs> yes. Because I was reading out of Jill's edition today and I own this book, the original, but yeah, we'll go there because what she did was nothing short of masterful. I think Jeannie's like in heaven thinking, yes. So I'm going to be quoting from something about the author, volume 135. It says, in an essay in Science and Children, Bendick expressed her belief that, quote, text and picture should complement, not duplicate each other. Adding that one of the best things any illustrator can give to a picture is his own viewpoint the special way he sees things, end quote. Before Bendick draws any picture to illustrate a scientific principle, she always builds a model of what she will be drawing to make sure that it really works. And she admits that although she is, quote, certainly not the best artist in the world, end quote, children respond well to her illustrations. She once commented, children sometimes write to me saying that they like my pictures because I've drawn things the way they would draw them. Children do see things in another way from adults. I think that's because they look for different things. So when I draw and when I write, I try to look at the world their way and my way so that I end up with our way of seeing the world around us, end quote. Oh, right. So see how she did that. Yes. And you can, right? Like we're looking at her illustrations today in um, Who Lives in this Meadow and just the detail to understand, like she's explaining the gills on a fish and how a gill or how the fish gets oxygen. And she points to everything and you, it's just so easy to visualize it through her illustrations. And she does it just so beautifully. And what I love about her was she loved science and she loved nature. So she actually mm-hmm. wrote a lot of more like technical type books. In fact, I think she wanted to know more about electronics or something. So oh. she wrote an <laughs> electronics for kids and she, she drew, like she created the models first and then she drew them. So her work is, well, I mean, and then she wrote biographies and I mean, her work is just massive. Jeannie Bendit can be a whole nother conversation and yeah, and it's, on the, it's on the list to do next year is to do yeah. Jeannie Bendit. Yeah. But her collaboration here with Blau is masterful. And the fact that Jill has brought, I'd have to go look up. I'm not sure how many there are in the series, but have you done four Jill? I think I've done three so far. Yeah. Who lives at the seashore is coming. coming. Yeah. yeah, you have done. Who lives in this meadow? Um, after the sun goes down, and bird watchers, bird feeders. So there are a total of fourteen books in the series that they collaborated on, and so far Jill has done three, and these are all really rare. So it's an incredible blessing to have any of them back in print. Mm-hmm. Who lives at the seashore was really. It took me a long time to find a book that was for sale for less than a hundred dollars and it didn't have a cover. And I ended up borrowing it from a friend. So Jill, I have never seen the Jeannie Bendick and Glenn Blau books in the wild, but I understand from my friends who have them and what you've told me that the beautiful books I have today are not what the originals look like, that the originals were much more limited in their coloring. They're a little different. The way that printing used to work is that there were several pages printed on one sheet of paper. Mm -hmm. And to get full color, the sheet 
would go through the printing press four times with to, you know, cyan, magenta, yellow, and black. And then you would get full color with that. And there would be probably um, 16 to 32 pages on each side of the sheet. So to save money, 50 years ago, they would send the sheet of paper through the printing press four times, or in this case, three times, because um, who lives in this meadow? Is it yellow and green and black? So that and would have gone through. I had, yeah. a, I had a little bit of pink, but okay. <laughs> uh, so that would have gone through the printing press three times. And then they would flip the sheet of paper over to get the other half of the book on there. And they would just run it through once using black ink. And it, oh. it saved them a lot of money because a lot of the cost in printing old books was the labor. Mm -hmm. So they were limited um, to make the books affordable. They would do full color on half the pages. And then on the other half, there'd be black. And so now it's the same price if you have full color on every page or just one page, you, you know, it costs the same amount to print the book. So I was looking at all these black and white pages in the book and I thought, well, I could probably make them more interesting for children if I added color. <laughs> so like in bird watchers and bird feeders, it's blue and red and black. Yes. So what I, what I did on the black and white pages is that I went in and um, I, the one I'm thinking about, there was a little girl and she had red hair and she was wearing yes. blue jeans, but it was a black and white page. So I went in and I made her hair red and I made her blue jeans blue and the exact same style that Jeannie Bendick did it. Oh. So I, I don't even think somebody would notice the difference between the two. No, no, absolutely because I not. Took, I took her drawings and I didn't modify them other than just selecting certain portions of them and changing the color. And I used the oh. same exact color she did. And so I just, I just, I had a lot of fun doing that, taking the parts of the drawings to put in color to match what she had done in previous pages. I wanted to keep like a, you know, continuity going. What an upgrade, like what an upgrade to the books that is. They are so beautiful. Jeannie Bendick probably wanted it that way all along. She probably did. I, I have a feeling she, she would be happy with how it looks because I didn't change. I didn't change her drawings. I just modified the colors of what she drew. Yeah, I think you just took her intention and followed through with it. It's amazing that technology is that you can do that so easily today. Mm -hmm. I mean, I say easily, but it's still a ton of work and it requires <laughs> a lot of skill. <laughs> well, it sounds easy. You say, well, you just select this and change the color, yeah, but it's no. really not like that. It took several weeks to go through because there were about <clears throat> 24 pages I modified. And so it was time consuming, but I think it was well worth the effort. And if it's fun and it's good for children, makes them more interested in the book, you know, it's, it's a win-win. Absolutely. Well, it's like the best adult coloring project. Right? <laughs> yes. 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 I look at it that way. It's an adult coloring book for me. Yeah. Uh, I, and I look through it and I have the originals and, you know, I'm reading this one to Ava today and I can't tell which ones would have been the original colorized pages versus which ones you colored. So I think it's impeccably done. You didn't talk about the page numbers though, because that I don't think is in the original. Oh, the original had page numbers, but I added that one. I added um, ducks, bumblebee on the top. 
Oh, then, uh, did, I, did I add a duck on the bottom of that one or is that a different book? Those little ducks. Yeah, yeah. you had the ducks on the bottom and the bumblebees on the top page numbers. Yeah, because yeah, the duck is swimming. So I thought it has to be on the ground. So it's on the bottom <laughs> of the page. And then the bumblebee is flying. So depending on where the pictures were on the page, it either had a page number at the bottom or top. And then it had the corresponding <clears throat> for B. <laughs> Oh, and where, where did you get the images for those? Just, it was in the book. I just oh. took little pieces of the book and separated them out and used them for the page numbers. Oh, such sweet embellishments. I love it. Yeah, so they're Jeannie's fun. actual drawings just yeah. utilized in a different way. It's such a small detail. A child would catch it, as Leonard yes. Kessler said. Children will notice those details, right? Mm-hmm. But it just adds to the like enjoyment. It does. Yeah. (laughs) It just makes it like just the epitome of a lovely children's book. I love them. Well, this is one of the things about Jill's books in general that I like is that it, it, we always talk about the fact that reading is an experience and Jill's books always have all those loving touches that just everywhere you look, there is something that was lovingly done and it feels like a very rich experience when you're reading your books, Jill. So well, thank that's you. like a, one of the nicest compliments you could have given me. Oh, yay! <laughs> and, and after the sun goes down, I did something similar. I, there was a frog in there that I thought was really cute. So I took this frog and I put it on the bottom of almost every page, but I changed its location and I changed its size. <laughs> and, and sometimes I flipped it to the left or flipped it to the right. And I thought, um, Because I remember reading um, Is Your Mama a Llama with my kids and my daughter, my oldest daughter, very intelligent. She would always see the animal on the page that was going to be on the next page. Um. And so we went through and she would always look for that. So I was thinking, (laughs) you know, what Leonard told me also, I thought, well, maybe someone, some of the kids will try to figure out, you know, like, where's the frog on this page? And I just thought it might make it more fun for them. (laughs) I love it. I don't have any emotional attachment to the original books because I never read them, but um, talking about the coloring of them, I think it's just masterful, the artistry of understatement, because I have been doing a lot of research in early readers and where the the publisher who did the I Can Read series took a lot of those old books that I did love, like Francis the Badger, that were black and white and just made them garish. And so it's, to me, it's almost an insult to children that, you know what, we don't think that reading's interesting enough for you Mm -hmm. to just pay attention to that. And we don't think that you can appreciate anything that doesn't have these outrageous colors. Mm -hmm. So it just seems so tasteful and understated to me. Like kids can understand that. And appreciate it. Mm -hmm. I agree. Well, a palette of a few simple colors is meaningful. It doesn't have to be like the full color garish, like Diane said. You can get by with red and blue and black or yellow and green and black. And tell a very technical and yet winning story with just Mm -hmm. a few colors. It's Mm -hmm. amazing. Well, the Blau and Bendick books, they are marvelous. Absolutely marvelous. Zim was the first one you did, Ostriches. And mm-hmm. that one, it, it, you have everybody has to read it to find out the fact that ostriches do not bury their head in the sand. And Zim is very emphatic that you learned that point. Um, I didn't think I would care about ostriches at all. 
<laughs> but I really, really was fascinated by that book. The pictures are amazing, sometimes hilarious, oftentimes just very winning. So one of the things I love about many authors we were talking about earlier is that they did spend a lot of time in nature as children. And that's kind of what impressed upon them. I think their desire to grow up and become scientists or nature mm-hmm. authors or artists. And I found this quote from Glenn Plow, the outdoors and I have been friends since my early childhood. I grew up in rural Michigan where there were woods, ponds, fields, gardens, and farms. Living things were a part of my everyday existence. And especially in summer, I explored the countryside in company with my relatives and neighbors. The tree on the road to Turntown, which is one of the books in the series, was a large spreading oak halfway between my house and my 11-year-old friends, who lives in the meadow, probably began to take shape years and years ago when I went on missions in meadows and fields to satisfy my curiosity. Christmas trees and how they grow had its origins in the cold Michigan Christmases when we made treks through the deep snow to locate and cut an evergreen that would reach from floor to ceiling in our living room. Some of the observations about seasonal changes that are frequently a part of books like Soon After September were made years ago when Michigan's golden autumns turned to cold winter days and at long last the sun rose earlier and stayed up longer to melt the snow and freeze the ice and sprout the seeds and open buds. And then came the summer days when freedom from the confines of the schoolroom made trips in the out of doors a part of almost every day. Two things I have always wanted to do, learn more about the environment in which I live and interest others in it by teaching them and by writing materials they will want to read. Luckily, I have had, I have had opportunities to do both. Do you love that? I do. And being from Wisconsin, hearing how he's describing you know, the seasonal things of Michigan. I, that just feels very true. I, I yeah. now I, I want I, all of them. I know I want all of them too. Jill, we need all Come of on, them. Jill, all of them. Go Jill, do them all. No, I just like knowing that who lives in the meadow is from his own childhood. Yes. I never, never realized that. Yeah. I hadn't realized that either. And I kind of think maybe that's why it does speak so powerfully to children. I say to my husband, sometimes there are adults in the world where you can still see that they are like children. There's a a sense of wonder and awe in them. And then there are adults in the world that you think, were you ever young? Yeah. Did, were you ever a child? Did you ever play outside? Like, I, like, I don't even understand Like, you don't relate to children at all, but you were a child at one point. And I think it's just so confusing to me. I like, I love teenagers for example, I just think it's one of the most magical ages. I've loved having teenagers. Like it's just been a delight. And I think for me, it's just because I really remember being a teenager. It's still pretty vivid in my mind. Mm -hmm. So when I look at these authors and you hear the words of Glenn Blau in this way, he can speak to children through the stories because he remembers it from his childhood. And so it, it connects to a child rather than being like an adult writing, right? right? Like, like, it's like, they can speak to children, Jeannie Bendick. So then you take Jeannie Bendick who cared so much about children, you know, based on the story I just shared previously. And you take Glenn Blau and you put them together. It's going to be magic. It's going to be magic. (laughs) Well, and as, as a mom, one of the things that I find so winning about the books is that they give children permission to slow down and live like children to appreciate the world through the eyes of a child. Instead of, I think about our Houghton Mifflin textbooks in school growing up that were all about 
raising miniature adults. You know, in fourth grade, you read aloud when the teacher calls on you, you read your paragraph out loud, and you're talking about the rattlesnake. And it's very technical, very dry, very boring. So how many Blau and Bendick books do you need to sell to do more Blau and Bendick books? <laughs> well, that's a question I wasn't expecting. Um, I don't know. I guess we just need to see the interest pick up in um, in the in her nature study books. And just so that I know that if I put in the time to do another one, that people will be interested in it. Awesome. I think that's one of the things we want to encourage listeners is that we're not trying to spend your money and we're not trying to tell you to go out and spend money you don't have. We're simply saying that if you're looking for beautiful books to have in your library to meet particular needs, we think these are some of the best possible ones you can buy. And the more that we support these books, the more of them will become available. So we're just asking people to vote with their dollars, but only with dollars you had already planned to spend. <laughs> so we're not trying to, we're not trying to get you into trouble with your budget or uh, anything like that. Also, I just think this is a, a great moment to do a PSA that one of the places that would benefit the most from these books is your neighborhood library, whether that's a public library or a school library. And it's a wonderful thing if you have a relationship with a librarian where you can put in requests that these books become stocked. Mm -hmm. So even if you can't afford these books, maybe the best thing you can do is get your local librarian to try to order them for your local library. I've already told you how much I love bird watchers and bird feeders, and I love Blau and Bendick, and I think that their collaboration is magic. Of course, I love collaboration. It's just one of my most favorite things in the whole world. But the books that took me the most by surprise and maybe impressed me the most are the Alice Gowdy books. I thought Here Come the Bears was absolutely magical. I didn't think I would care, but I really did. How did you guys, like, how did Alice Gowdy come on the radar? Tanya, how do you know about Alice Gowdy? Yeah, I learned about her years ago. I think she's actually one of the authors in Jan Bloom's books. And I love Jan Bloom's books. I'm just going to do a little plug for those. But there are <laughs> so many authors in there. It's just hard to get your mind wrapped around all of them. But mm -hmm. she, I think both Glenn Blau and her are in maybe the second volume. And she has the series, the Here Come the Animals series. They're really rare. I think, Jill, I should share that with you, right, about the series? Yes, you did. Yeah. I and I was, that was probably your first suggestion for nature books was for me to look at Alice Gowdy and Robert McClung. Are those yeah. like the biggest unicorns? Is that why they were your first suggestions? Or you just thought they would have the most selling, like they would be most attractive to people? McClung is, McClung is probably one of the most popular and well-known and mm -hmm. one of the most rare. And his books are just, I mean, they're just delightful and lovely. Yes. He had a way with words, right? Yeah. Gowdy, I think is a little less well-known, but her books were also becoming really rare and they're just, I love her. Mm -hmm. And so similar to Blau and I think some of the other authors who spent time in nature in their childhood, that was Gowdy's story as well. And I want to share her story because she also became a teacher and she wanted to have stories available to children that she didn't have available to her when she was teaching in a school. Mm -hmm. so that was kind of what um, drove her. So here's from her own words. This is from uh, the third book of junior authors, 1972. This is an autobiographical sketch. She said the sturdy stone house near junction city, where I was born defied the Kansas cyclones. 
but my environment offered me little in the way of playmates my own age. I was the belated last of five children born to my parents, and neighboring children lived at some distance. As a result, I spent many hours roaming the hills and the valleys and along the streams of our farm. On one occasion, I am told, my mother asked me what I did when I stayed away for an unusually long time. I replied, I was listening. No doubt what I listened to and what I saw in the woods and along the streams is stored in my memory and has resulted in my books being mainly about animals and nature. It is easy for me to envision the movements and to recall the sounds and the smells in the world of nature. So then she goes on and says she was teaching and she was looking at the text that she had available for the children. And she said, my first book, The Good Rain, grew out of my experience with droughts in Kansas. It has sold well over a period of about 20 years. This I attribute to its being based on authentic experience. The Here Comes series are animal life cycle books with a slant toward preservation of our wildlife. They are used in the teaching of elementary science. The day we saw the sun come up, houses from the sea and butterfly time are picture books for the very young and are used in the primary grades. Adrian Adams illustrated these books with sensitivity and imagination. Houses from the sea and the day we saw the sun come up were runners up for the Caldecott Award. Hmm. I hope my books have, even in a small degree, supplied some of the supplementary reading, which I felt was so badly needed when I was teaching in that little one-room country schoolhouse. Mm-hmm. So I love her story. I love that she, it was her childhood that impacted her. It was the need to help children as she was a teacher. Mm-hmm. And then she started to write. And also like another day, another conversation, Adrian Adams is one of my like top 10 favorite illustrators. Mm-hmm. And she, she was an illustrator for the here come books. Mm-hmm. I think it was Gary McKenzie and he did an amazing job for those books. Right. But this, this other collaboration is really powerful. So these stories are just lovely. So I really, I came to Jill and said, Oh, just look at these ones. They're so great. These are not to be missed. And I would really love people to have an experience with them and to read them to a child and see how a child would connect to these stories. Cause I think, I think she's one of the the best authors of the time. Well, I thought that her writing was really sophisticated when you say she's one of the best writers of her time. And that was the feeling I got the, the literature value of her writing is excellent. But she also incorporates such a wonderful curiosity for the habitat, like what is going on with the bear. You know, I look at the deer in our yard and I think about how the life cycle is with the doe and her fawns and her yearlings. And I am always thinking back to here come the bears and how the mother bear, you know, raises her cubs and at what point she, she lets them go off. And it's just a fascinating way of drawing a child into knowledge about how these things work. But it's also very, very orderly. And, you know, going back to that idea that science is also about order. And I feel like her books divided into the four families like that. You know, you were saying the repetition, Tanya. So by the time you get to the second and third and fourth bear families, you're like, oh, I know what's going to come next. Next, we're going to hear about this. And then we're going to hear about that. So we can do the compare and the contrast. But it doesn't feel like a device. It just feels like here's another story about another bear family. And look at this. The polar bears are actually very different from the brown bears. And I thought that was marvelous. So I found that book to just be so interesting because you could read the whole thing in one go. Or you could read one bear family a day in Morning Basket for four days in a week. And on the fifth day, come back and just review it and narrate it. I, I loved that book. But Jill... That one, you did some color work on that as well. Tell us about that. 
Well, first of all, I just want to say that's a great idea, breaking it up one story per day, because each little bear family is self-contained in their own story. Mm-hmm. And the way that it was illustrated before, the, the bears were all in a shade of dark brown, because that was cost effective at the time to do the book in two colors. There are grizzly bears, brown bears, black bears, and polar bears. And so when, when I got to the polar bears and I was looking at the pictures, I just thought that the polar bears looked like they were rolling around in mud instead of on the oh. ice. Yeah. So, so I thought, you know, I have to, I have to help these polar bears. And so, <laughs> so, so I turned the brown to a nice shade of blue in their yes. story. And then the other three bears, I gave them their own shade of brown just to make it each one, each little family a little bit different. I actually thought that was very helpful because when you're reading, you can remember specifically what kind of bear you're reading about because the color change. And so then when you're thinking about them, I think of the brown bears in that kind of sort of sepia color you did versus the grizzly, which is in that that darker brown, right? Do I, am I remembering that right? I think so. That's not right. <laughs> yeah, I think the grizzly is like a grayish brown and the brown bears are a sepia brown. And and it was just to see the difference because I might conflate a brown bear, a brown bear and a black bear. Cause to me, they don't seem that different, but Gaudi does a beautiful job of explaining exactly how different they are. And so I think the color differentiation is a gift. And so again, I think you're just honoring what the author and illustrator always intended. Yeah. I think they'd be happier with the current color scheme. <laughs> how could they not be? So Jill, your standard picture book tends to be a little bit larger, but it only has about 32 to 40, 45 pages, something like that. These are really long. They are skinny is in terms of a chapter book, but they're really long for an illustrated full color illustrated book. When Jill and I were looking at these books and I was sharing them with her, one of the things that was really unique is just the sizing. They're kind of small. The original book's um, I have on BiblioGuides were six and three eighths by seven and three eighths. Mm. So it's a really odd size. And yeah, Jill only has so many options. She was brainstorming with me, which I love her being able to feel comfortable doing that. And I think she took them to six by nine and she made some adjustments to the books so that they fit well and they would be beautiful to hold in your hand and a mm-hmm. good read, but they are longer. These books are like three times as long as a picture book. Yeah, they are. There's just like the really great illustrated story, mm-hmm. not what you would think of as a typical picture book. So yeah. this makes them in some ways that they're just a lot more work for her to do with the changes sure. that she made and, and bringing them to print. It's more like a chapter book. But a chapter book in full color. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's just so important for people to know that and understand that between the value of the storytelling, which I think we've established, and then we haven't too much talked about the illustrations, but the illustrator was also a well-known nature illustrator Mm. and he did other nature books as well. So the illustrations are fabulous and you put all of this together with what Jill brought. They're absolutely worth, if you can afford it to put into your home library. And if you're looking for the best of the best books, I I always say that the shelves in our home are high value real estate. And so we want to make sure that we're putting things there that are really going to nourish our children. And I hope that that's one of the things we've shared today is that the quality of the authors that Jill chose to to choose and the the books and the titles she chose are worthy of that space and worth consideration. And one of the things that kind of came out because nature books were such a new thing for her, um, as I've gotten to know her, she actually really loves nature. 
She loves animals. Jill has dogs and um, she has animals. And she, when she's reading books, she actually gets really attached to the story and what's happening to the animals and whether or not she thinks it's right. (laughs) And I think there's this beautiful tie-in for her as a publisher is that a lot of these authors also, they wanted children to have an understanding and to take, it's almost like nature has there's a sacredness to our earth and to the animals that are on it. And we have a responsibility to protect our earth. And I know that conservationism and environmentalism can be really a heated topic. So I don't, I'm not trying to go there, but what I am trying to share is that a lot of these authors wanted to instill a love of our earth and our responsibility, especially Robert McClung. And the beautiful tie-in is that Jill wants that too. So Mm -hmm. she loves animals. And I think she, I think she didn't know how much she was going to fall in love with nature books (laughs) or nature study. And then she was like, I wish I'd had this as a kid. And one time she said to me, I wish I'd had these for my kids. And I said, I know my oldest is 22 and I didn't have these for three of my four children. I said, but Jill, you get to give them to so many children. I mean, that's a gift and a blessing. Mm -hmm. And I, I just want to share something that Robert McClung said about why he wrote And I feel like this kind of might be at the heart of why Jill loves her nature library as well. Mm -hmm. This is from something about the author 135. McClung once commented on the content and purpose of his works. Practically all my books deal with wild animals and the natural environment. Unfortunately, more and more of the vital habitat that wildlife needs for survival is being polluted or destroyed by the actions of homo sapiens. Through the years, I have increasingly stressed in my writings the importance of a healthy environment and the conservation and wise use of all Earth's resources. My aim in all of my books is to heighten the reader's awareness and appreciation of nature and to develop his or her interest in and sympathy for all living things. The sooner a child develops an appreciation of the world he lives in and realizes that it could be destroyed, the better prepared he will be to make sane and wise choices when he becomes an adult. And I just love that. That's so relevant to today. And, you know, Charlotte Mason talks about the importance too of children studying it. And she said, we are all meant to be naturalists, each mm-hmm. in his own degree. And it is inexcusable to live in a world so full of the marvels of plant and animal life and to care for none of these things. And I think if you understand the things, you care a lot more about them. And we see that in City Under the Back Steps, that once the children go and visit the ants they think twice about whether or not you're going to stomp on an ant it makes it it makes a huge difference in their lives you know my grandfather was a um, incredibly well-known and well-regarded pathologist and scientist he's the most well-read person i've ever known and you know he's he's read everything and many times and read it well i inherited some of his library and I remember going to him when my children were very small and we were beginning this journey of homeschooling and saying, what should I do for science curriculum for my children? You know, there are all these different programs out there. And he said, Sarah, the first science class I ever had was in ninth grade. He said, nature study, do nature study. They will fall in love with science because their curiosity will have been cultivated. Go chase wonder. And I feel like these books give our children a vernacular for that. 
give them an invitation and a window into that and can really support our love of nature. And if you're a Charlotte Mason mom and you live in a climate like I do that's really inhospitable and she wants you out of doors every single day and it's just not possible if you live in Wisconsin or Wyoming and it's 30 below in February, these books are a wonderful way to bring nature into your home, even in the coldest or if you're in the deep, deep south and it's hot in the summer in the hottest months. When nature is less accessible, these books are still accessible. So we encourage you to check out Jill's website, to take a look at her nature study library, and uh, take a look at ostriches, take a look at Buzztail and Leaper, and make sure you check out Alice Gowdy because that book is a real treasure. And if we could have more people fall in love with Alice Gowdy, we could maybe have more Alice Gowdy books. So go take a look at that. Right when you said that, I was like, yeah, boom. (laughs) Can you tell us which ones you have in the hopper and let people tell us which one they want the most? Sure. I definitely have Here Come the Lions, Here Come the Elephants, Here Come the Beavers, Here Come the Whales. So those are all ones you have rights to and can do if you want to. Yes. So we encourage our listeners to go check out Here Come the Bears fall in love with it, and then come and tell us. Either comment and somewhere where this is posted or send us a message, send Jill a message, send Tanya a message or me. Let us know which Alice Gowdy book do you want next and uh, spread the word. We need more Alice Gowdy in this world, Jill. (laughs) Amen. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Have people tell us. That's a great idea. (laughs) Well, Tanya and Jill, We're so glad to have you here today to talk about these nature books. We're so glad that they exist. So bravo to the two of you for your beautiful collaboration. Thank you for coming. And uh, we're going to chat with you again very soon. In point of fact, in just a minute, we're recording a different episode. (laughs) Thanks for having us. Yes. Everybody, thanks so much for listening. Jill and Tanya, thank you so much. And we will, we'll be back soon. 